HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Today, our guest is Sarah Bear Sinnott, the president of Old Ways, a nonprofit food and nutrition organization dedicated to improving public health through cultural food traditions and lifestyles. That's a mouthful. But if you think you haven't heard of Old Ways, you are wrong. Old Ways tentacles touch almost everything you think about food today. It was the organization that brought the Mediterranean diet to the forefront, the champion of whole grains and food products, and the creator and convener of a wide swath of the culinary community, the who's who, inviting huge bands of chefs, writers, retailers, and food processors from all over the world to gather together to revere and preserve the value and joy of artisanal food, in short, the old ways. Let's get started with Sarah. When I first met Sarah on an old ways trip, I was invited along with famous chefs, famous food writers, famous journalists, to go to Puglia, Italy for a week or two. And it was really quite amazing. And I realized that Sarah, I knew her as part of Old Ways, but I really never knew how she got into food. And that's where I'd like to begin, Sarah. It's fascinating to me. You have created, and Old Ways has created through you and through um, our late and beloved Dun Gifford, an incredible crucible for creating the community of food people, food writers, creators, um, people who grow things all over the world, and the Mediterranean diet. How'd you get started? Well, thank you. The vision really was Dunn's. I came very late to food. I was an only child growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My mom was a great cook. I went out to lots of restaurants and loved it, but I was not a great cook. My mom 
did cook for dinner parties when they'd hire me to be a, a waitress of sorts. But I was not a cook. And even after I graduated from college, went to graduate school, I was still not a cook. And I had two kids. I was working at Inc. Magazine. And I was still not a cook. And I met Dunn through uh, Lisa Burlingham. And Lisa uh, was Dunn's travel agent. And he told her that he needed someone to organize conferences. And that's something I had done at Inc. for Inc. the Inc. 500. And so I met Dunn. And as you know, he's bigger than life, fascinating. And I was really excited to work on a conference in Spain and one with the Harvard School of Public Health to introduce the Mediterranean diet. And both conferences were filled with famous food people, Paula Wolfer, Claudia Rodin. I had no idea who they were. They were just really nice people that I was learning from. And as time went by, the mission became a passion of my own. Sarah, situate this in time for me. When did you start with the first conference in Spain? What year was that? The conference in Spain was 1992, which was the 500th anniversary of Columbus's coming to America. And we had 90 of the who's who in food and wine, traveling from Barcelona to Seville to Madrid. It was really the beginning of the introduction of the Mediterranean diet. Dunn and Greg Drescher and Nancy Harmon Jenkins and I put this conference together. And it still may be one of my most favorite conferences. It was just magical traveling um, through these three places in Spain. With every conference, something goes wrong. In Barcelona, I sent one bus off with uh, 19 people to go to a cooking class at a famous cooking school in Barcelona. And the remaining 70 people had to fit on a bus along with all our luggage. And it was a disaster. And uh, we ended up commandeering five taxi cabs on the Ramblas and stuffing all the luggage in these taxis and getting to the airport. And um, it was before the TSA, so we could arrive at the very last minute. And I got on the plane, and there was one seat left, and I sat down, and Corby was sitting next to me. That would be Corby Cummer, the one and only. And Corby looked at me, and I was just dripping with sweat. And he said, you know, I don't usually help people on planes, but you look like you need help. And I really did. But we got everybody from Barcelona to Seville, where the expo in 1992 was being held. And we would get all these 90 people through the gates into the expo to go to a conference with, you know, these incredible people talking about Spanish food, Mediterranean food, and historians, people like Tim Lang, who are experts in food policy. It was really, really very special. And then the very first Mediterranean Diet Conference was with the Harvard School of Public Health, was in 1993 at the Hyatt in Cambridge on the River. We had been meeting with the Harvard School of Public Health and the scientists. It was Demetrius and Antonia Tricopoulou, Marian Nessel, um, of course, Walter Willett, and um, others at Harvard. And the idea was to describe the Mediterranean diet. And we ended up with 10 characteristics. 
But before the conference happened, Dunn realized that nobody would really be able to digest these 10 characteristics. They wouldn't fit on the front page of USA Today or the Wall Street Journal. So the USDA had just come out with their first pyramid. So we borrowed the idea and the scientists calculated, you know, what the area of each piece of the pyramid should be to be scientifically accurate. And that's how the Mediterranean diet pyramid was first created, did make it onto the front page of of USA Today. So you invented the Mediterranean diet pyramid in its graphic form. People think about, oh, the Mediterranean diet, sure, we know what that is. But at that time, they, they really didn't. No, and it was also a time of low-fat and no-fat government policy. You remember all these low-fat, no-fat foods like snack wells were, were filled with sugar and people thought they could eat lots of them and they'd gain weight because they were really high caloric. There was a very small shelf of olive oil in 1993. There was no hummus, no Greek yogurt, no sun-dried tomatoes. It was a very different grocery retail, and people didn't eat Mediterranean foods, and chefs weren't putting olive oil on the table. The culinary symposiums, they were cultural and culinary, that we put together, like the one you went to in Puglia, came from a desire to raise awareness about olive oil and the Mediterranean diet. And so we took lots of famous people who would publicize it through cookbooks, through articles, by changing menus and putting items on menus, historians, scientists, to connect food and culture and history, because it really is all put together. And we raised money from the International Olive Oil Council and from whatever region we went to. And through that, we were able to bring lots of people together. It had this wonderful effect of creating lots of great friendships. We even had one marriage and lots of business relationships, too, that were created because of this community of people who love and care about food and want to make sure that other people feel that same passion. What better way to see and experience a place other than through its food, through its agriculture, wine, uh, cheese, and learning how to cook these kinds of dishes? Those trips were incredible in creating kind of a national community of food people. I mean, I remember being sort of starstruck because it was early on for me as well at people like Rick Bayless and Ari Zingerman, the guy from Ann Arbor, and the chef who brought his bicycle everywhere, and chefs running through the fields in Italy holding some piece of what looked to me like grass saying, I found whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's right. Just kind of an incredible experience. It was an incredible experience, and we now do it for everyone. Old Ways Culinary, bring together people with a chef or other food expert. We've done quite a few with Anna Sortun uh, from Oleana in Cambridge and going to Turkey or Greece or Morocco. Barbara Lynch at all of her different restaurants. We went to Emilia Romagna in Parma with Barbara. And it's, it's just a wonderful way to learn about the history because the food is connected to history. 
Totally. I couldn't agree more. And in front of all this was the wild and wacky Dunn Gifford. And Dunn, um, not only did you love food, you and Dunn obviously were very close. And that must have animated some of the passion for the food and the travel and all of that. For people who've never heard of Dunn, how would you begin to describe who he was? Dunn was so many different things. He was a a lawyer. He worked for both Bobby and Teddy Kennedy. He was a businessman. He was a friend of Julia Child's. He worked with the American Institute of Wine and Food that Julia and Robert Mondavi created. And he was also really, really smart and made Frank Sachs from the Harvard School of Public Health would always say that Dunn was just the most amazing synthesizer. He could take a lot of complicated information, which sometimes diet and health is complicated, and and make it really understandable for, for everyone. And at the same time, being around him, he made most everybody feel like they were very special. And he paid a lot of attention to each person because there were a lot of people that were very special to him. He could go up to a microphone and not have a single idea of what he was going to say the next minute and then (laughs) speak for a half an hour. May not have been on topic, but it was really interesting. (laughs) He was fun. He was fun. The creation of Old Ways came from culinary travel that he did with the American Institute of Wine and Food and also he and... It was quite a group of of women that he drove around northern Italy with. It was Marion Morash and Tecla Sanford, Cheryl Julian, and Nancy Harmon Jenkins. And the the five of them, I think, were in a a a Volkswagen van and drove all over northern Italy. And through that, Dunn saw that a lot of the old ways um, were, were threatened through a lot of industrialized food. And so that's why he came back to Boston and created what was called then Old Ways Preservation and Exchange Trust. And the idea was to preserve the old ways and that they are healthier, happier, and they're much more sustainable. And so that's how Old Ways began, the Mediterranean diet, because it had the most science behind it, was the very first project that we had. But because, as Don would say, one size doesn't fit all, and there are lots of really rich, robust cultural uh, culinary traditions around the world, cultural food traditions, we introduced the Asian diet pyramid, the Latin American diet pyramid, uh, a vegetarian and vegan, and then the most recent that actually happened after Dunn died was the African Heritage Diet Pyramid, the culinary traditions of the African diaspora, being Africa, the Caribbean, parts of South America, and the American South. We are also the Whole Grains Council. It's a foundation of a lot of traditional diets, uh, whole grains. And so we've helped... What, is the, what, is, what does it mean to be the Whole Grains Council? I do have a group of of people who review products to see if they are up to snuff. What what does that mean? Well, it's a program of old ways, even though it sounds like it's a different organization. 400 companies belong, and they send us information about their products. 
and we qualify them as having a certain number of grams of whole grains. And if they have at least eight grams of whole grains, they can have the basic stamp. There's another one, a 50-plus stamp, where the product has to be at least 50% or more than 50% whole grain, and then one that 100% of the grain is whole. And it's a little black and gold stamp. When we finish here, Louisa, you'll go into your pantry and you'll have lots of whole grain stamps in your pantry. There's uh, 13,000 products in 65 countries that use the whole grain stamp. That's a pretty amazing accomplishment. So the companies feel that having the whole grain stamp is a marketing advantage for them. It's a consumer benefit that consumers care about. Right, because a consumer can't look at a package and look at the nutrition facts label and determine how many grams of whole grains. It's just not possible. And so we're a third party that validates that based on the information that we're given. Not a marketing message. It's just a factual. It's it's a descriptive, not a prescriptive uh, stamp. So we're not saying that you're going to be healthier or you're not going to prevent cancer or heart disease, although there's lots of research that says if you eat this way, you will reduce your risk of heart disease or cancer or obesity or diabetes. We meet with the FDA to talk about this. We'll be back in a minute with Sarah, and I'll ask her how she manages to travel all over the world constantly and always seems to be so put together. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. And we are back with Sarah Bear Senate. Sarah, you've done so many worthy things, but one of the things that amazes me is how you you did it all kind of effortlessly and dressed in the most amazing clothes. I always wondered when I saw you on all those trips or you had just come back from a trip or you were just leaving for a trip with kind of like a carry-on. I'm away for three weeks. I will look fabulous every day and I have a carry-on and that's all. How did you do that? I'm a terrible packer and I go with the philosophy of you need options. So I always brought too much stuff and I just deal with it. I've lost my luggage and I've had to start fresh. Then you have some beloved clothes from Istanbul or from Puglia. I lost my luggage uh, before that conference in Puglia. But no, I I don't pack light. I'm trying, but, you know, plus I love shoes. And so I do buy shoes when I'm traveling. And the other thing I do is I always go to a hairdresser and whatever city I'm in. 
And it's a way of, I always ask people what they eat and cook as long as we're able to communicate. It's an interesting experience going to a hairdresser all around the world. Tell me what it's like if you, you sort of find your hairdresser, settle yourself in the chair and say, so what are you making for dinner? Well, a lot of times it's the mother that they talk about that is the cook in their family. In Istanbul, for instance, uh, there's a separate room for women who can't be seen with without a headdress on by, by men who might be in the salon. So it's always an interesting experience. Some are great and some are not so great, but it's fun. <laughs> well, you've traveled everywhere I can think of, and you're always either putting together a trip, planning a trip, or not. What what have you found is complicated for you without done at the helm? When you've now done with such a large figure that I think people are surprised at how incredibly efficient and visionary you are in his absence, as if he almost, his star was so bright that we couldn't really see that you were the one pulling so many of the levers and essentially resolving so many of the problems, but also having vision. So has that surprised you? When you're not afraid, there's a lot of great things that can happen. People who love food all around the world are wonderful. And then you know, they, they know old ways, and we have been welcomed with such open arms. I think that if I had to go into certain ministries of agriculture or tourism in certain kinds of countries, it might be more difficult being a woman and not being a man who's six foot four. I've had just one wonderful experience after another. And back in the old days, we brought my kids with me to all sorts of different places, and they were certainly enriched by having these incredible travel experiences. Will and Dunn and I were at a uh, an agriturismo in uh, Campania. When you're staying at an agriturismo, there's just one menu. You don't get to order what you like. And I think Will was about nine, and... It was rabbit on the menu. Dunn tried the, you know, taste like chicken kind of thing. And, and you know, it, it did taste like chicken. And Will finally tried it. And then he ordered it everywhere we went afterwards. He, I love Cornelio. It's... <laughs> so they, you know, their, their world was opened by traveling. And I think that for all of us, you know, certainly right now when we've been home for more than a year, I think we're all so excited to be exploring again sometime very soon. But our worlds are opened up, and we've heard from people who have come on the culinarias. Their business life and their home lives have been changed by their travels with old ways. I, I call them pinch-me moments, where you just can't believe you're that lucky to be in that spot. I think my very first real pinch-me moment was with the Greek food writer Aglaia Kromesi, it was a Sunday morning, and we were drinking wine and eating cheese and pickles and looking out over the hills of mustard greens and just thinking, Sunday morning wine tasting in Greece with Aglaia was just so special. I was just a little food writer from Boston, and I was in awe. And everybody was just kind of curious and creative with each other, and I really feel that you that it ended up setting the stage 
for this incredible kind of enriching of the food world that there was respect for the for the chefs and for the writers and for the producers the fact that food actually started in the fields or in the sea or in the air and people were fascinated by taking it at its most elemental level and turning it into something i just wonder how you pat yourself on the back for having created this incredible <laughs> community i think i I am always looking forward, so perhaps not looking back at what we've done. You know, people who love food love learning about food and learning about cooking and from what other people um, know. It's as you describe, you know, somebody running in and saying, look what I found, look what I found. And so everybody's excited about that. Corby is always bringing a loaf of bread from the latest bakery that he had been to. I think we created a place for that sharing of an experience. And it it was big. You know, there yeah. were 80, 90 people. And so that you got to know such a wide range of people. And then everyone wanted to stay in touch and keep participating with old ways and to learn about couscous and watch Paula Wolfert roll couscous in Morocco. I think that old ways was a catalyst, but I think that it's the larger community that made it so special. Well, they, they had such a wonderful time. They loved each other. I remember being with Paula, and suddenly it started to rain, and she didn't have a jacket. And I, of course, being, I am truly a terrible packer. The postulate of that is I always have whatever anybody else needs. And so I loaned her my little raincoat. And she took it back to San Francisco with her and she sent it to me and we kept up a correspondence. And one of the times I was in San Francisco, I had tea with her and I thought, look at this, look at little me <laughs> having tea with Paula Wolford at her house. This is kind of incredible. It was a surreal experience for me. It's for me too. I came from Inc. Magazine. It was a business magazine and organizing conferences and slowly learning about food. But it's a very welcoming, mostly kind world. And people love learning. And each of us has something to contribute. You know, you'd be on a bus sometimes way too long, but you'd be sitting next to somebody really interesting and, and you become friends for life. I met Jesse Cool, who's a chef in Menlo Park at an old race. Mediterranean Diet Conference, and she's one of my best friends to this day. We traveled for two or three days, just the two of us, and we've been friends since. She knows so much more about cooking and local and sustainable foods than I do, but I'm still learning from her. Let us transport ourselves to a point in the future where the pandemic does not feel as though it's an imminent threat to travel. Do you think you might recreate one of those trips that really builds that kind of national, global culinary community again? It would be so much fun. You just have to raise the money to do it, but it would be really incredible. There's a new generation, not wanting to be too ageist about it, but there were many of us <laughs> who were of, of an age, and that was 20 years ago. And there's a whole new young generation, and probably there would be a tremendous amount of energy putting those two generations together. I think that's a really great idea. I think that's something, a goal to aim for. 
I would love to do that. I'm in. I'm in. All right. I'll help you raise the money. <laughs> but only if I get to go. <laughs> of course. Food can play such an important role in our future. Agriculture is a big contributor towards global warming. And there's so much to learn about how to consume and how to buy and how to cook. This is a moment where this is happening and where African-American chefs are getting recognition for what they do. We're uh, organizing a, a culinary tour in the Low Country next May with um, Chef um, Jennifer Hill Booker from Atlanta and then also Chef B.J. Dennis. In, he's from Charleston. And we'll be learning about the Gullah traditions and learning about the Gullah cooking and language and crafts and song that made that part of the country what it is now. Well, sign me up. And as you get closer to that, send us the information so we can share it with our listeners who might want to come. Please do. Our website is oldwayspt, that's p for preservation, t for trust.org. And there's lots of information on our website also about cooking, traditional diets, Mediterranean, Asian, Latin American. You know, Dunn used to say, eat two days like a Mediterranean, eat two days like an Asian, remaining days Latin, vegetarian, African, maybe on the seventh, do whatever you want. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. This has just been great. Thank you. Thank you. I love talking with you. Oh, me too. Me too. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 